0: You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast, brought to you by kevkayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact, faster and easier, so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit kevkayat.com. Now, here is the host of nonprofit problem solver, Kev Kevkayat.
1: Kev here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. We're here to help. You are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. Our job is to bring you practical, tactical expertise that you can use right now or maybe in an hour. You're about to hear the recording of a live call with an expert panel, and you're more than welcome to join these live calls. Just zip on over to nonprofitproblemsolver.com to register. In Episode 5, we return to the topic of talent and staff development. We ask how furloughs are working out for nonprofits hoping to extend their cash reserves. And we look at remote working at scale. What does that mean for staff training? Can you rely on your existing policy for working at home? We also look at the expectations COVID is placing on newly hired leaders. All that, over the next hour. Okay, welcome everyone. It is time for Nonprofit Problem Solver, episode five. We are back to talent and staff development. So I am going to introduce our panel, starting with Arquella Hargrove.
2: Oh, thank you, Kev. This is uh, Arquella Hargrove, and I'm based in Houston, Texas. And uh, my business is Epic Collaborative Advisors, where we partner with organizations around their human resources strategies, diversity and inclusion, as well as leadership development. Great. And Jody Weiss? Sure. Um, Great to
3: be here. Uh, Jody Weiss, I lead the Nonprofit Education Practice at Corn Ferry. Um, Been with the firm about 15 years, so I've lived through a lot of change between 2008 and COVID-19. It's it's really been an interesting experience in in the hiring world. Um, I sit in the D.C. office right now, and I've been in the New York office and the Miami office of Corn Ferry as well.
1: Welcome. And Dana Litwin.
4: Hi, I'm Dana Litwin. I'm a CVA, Certified Volunteer Administration, and I have my own consulting practice around volunteer engagement and strategizing uh, volunteers as a capacity-building resource for organizations. I've worked a lot with government agencies, but nonprofits and on the corporate side as well. I've helped found in the last couple of years National Alliance for Volunteer Engagement, which is a multi-sector initiative. We just uh, published a letter kind of encouraging leaders what, what to do and what kind of strategies to take regarding volunteerism in COVID-19 resources. And I've uh, previously been on the board and am past president of ALIVE, our professional association, Association of Leaders in Volunteer Engagement. You're going to hear the word volunteer engagement a lot from me today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Derek Fulton. Oh, good afternoon, uh- My name is Derek Fulton,
5: and I proudly serve as regional vice president with City Year. Um, City Year is a national service organization. We deploy young idealists in 29 locations domestically, um, serving students um, in under-resourced communities. Um, I currently sit in Cleveland, Ohio. I support nine sites in the City Year network, nine out of the 29, primarily focused on the people, our people, um, our impact, our service in our communities, focusing on reading, math, social, emotional, and hoping that our young people get to school on time. And um, also um, the financial operations of the organization, making sure that we have money. Um, and similar um, to Jody, um, I've been in the, the work for 30 some odd years. And um, I led an organization in 2008, um, the recession. Nobody told me we would have a recession. And uh, it was a very interesting time. Uh, This is not like 2008
1: and 2009. No, it is different. And uh, welcome to the panel. Uh, The way this works is we will go through a series of questions. Uh, We invite uh, both panelists and others to uh, engage in the chat, and we will bring that into the conversation as and when. So our first question uh, to Arkella is about the furlough programs. We know that a number of nonprofits have undertaken in order to extend their cash flows and so on. How are those going?
2: Yes, thank you, Kev, for the question. So, yes, so we're seeing organizations um, implement furlough programs or you're, you're seeing Organizations do downsizing, but on the furlough, it's really just a temporary leave of absence um, due to what's happening. And so we see furlough in two different ways. So a furlough can happen where an employee is on uh, unpaid leave of absence or their hours can be reduced. And so with that, they are notified by their employer as to they're going on a furlough. Here's kind of the outline of what that may look like, especially if it's for a short-term period. Uh, one thing I do caution employers is when we are doing an unpaid furlough, we do have some that are doing, again, reduction of hours where there's some pay involved. That we look at the benefits and pay and so if someone is on an unpaid furlough then typically uh, are their benefits continuing if they are how are they being paid if it's by the employer or the employee or there's a a, if they're both going to contribute to the premiums or is there time paid time off being accrued or not if it's unpaid or paid so those are things to consider Whether it's a a paid furlough or unpaid furlough. But furloughs are only temporary where the employee will come back at some capacity uh, once we're past the crisis, uh, whatever that may look like in the future.
1: Right. Thank you for that explanation. You know, Derek. Oh, go so, ahead, Judy.
2: So I was just going to
3: chime in. Um, just, we, we had a talk about the Quan ferry. Um, we've furloughed a number of, of folks here and, you know, I think it's a great short-term solution. It's a great immediate cost savings. Um, you know, we are giving people full health benefits for themselves and their family, but what's interesting is, um, we can't, you know, the end dates are tricky because it's, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. There, we're hoping, you know, and I think we're we working with a lot of nonprofits who are going through this too. Everyone's hopeful. It's a great, um, you know, early-term solution, but it's not a guarantee. And I think, you know, it's important, you know, it's hard to be clinging to your job, but also not know. You know, you're hoping you're going back, but it's not a definite. So I think it's it's a, it's a difficult um, time for people at nonprofits to, to live through the waiting right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, last time we were telling people to – uh, continue with recruitment efforts mm-hmm. and just adjust to how they are undertaken. So obviously mm-hmm. leveraging things like uh, video and so on. Mm-hmm. But if you're an organization that has undertaken furlough, how has that affected your ability to attract candidates? And are you seeing at Corn Ferry people saying, well, I'm interested in this role, but they're in furlough. And because they can't give me an end date, I, I'm, I'm now a bit more tentative than, than I thought I might be. Mm-hmm. How's, that, how's that playing out?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, We're telling people to take contracts if they can. You know, there's a lot of organizations right now that are still offering shorter term contracts. Um, You know, the government roles are still moving forward with hiring and so forth. You know, strangely, and I know we'll talk about it later, a lot of organizations are full speed ahead. And a lot of searches restarted in the past two weeks, which is incredibly optimistic. I think a lot of people feel by end of June, July, we'll be traveling again, you know, who who knows. Um, But I think contracts, like if you love your employment, and you're committed to your employer, and you have health benefits, the best solution is a contract. Um, You know, this way, you're bringing in some, there's some financial relief for you, but you're not giving up and give, you know, giving up on your existing position.
1: Well that's interesting because de- as Derek uh, will know being uh, like me in Ohio we're an at-will state. There are there are no formal contracts. Uh so Derek how's that how's that feel to you and then do the uh, some of the other nine that you look after are they in other states that are at-will as like Ohio? Yeah, several states that we serve in are at-will. I don't I I can't
5: recall. So we have nine sites but we're in multiple states. Ohio definitely, Illinois at-will. Um, off the top of my head, I'm not sure about the other states. I'm in Texas as well. Um, I don't know if Texas is at will or not, but there is different issues and challenges we are, um, looking at as it relates to, um, reopening. What does that look like? I mean, there's a lot of different things that we have to account for because we're serving in different, um, states and we have different, um, municipalities and all that. Um, we, we've been fortunate to this point to not, um, to have not instituted furloughs as of yet. Um, we have um, started some expense saving planning, but because we're a collective um, 15013C, we um, entered this from a position of financial strength. Um, so we've not had to uh, yet institute um, furloughs. Um, so we're not in that position. And, and we're, begin- we're in budget season. We're ending a fiscal year and, and moving into the next fiscal year. And we're actually having locations who are hiring people um, uh, because of their financial strength as a site.
1: So I, n- I noticed that uh, some of your sites have uh, pending vacancies. How's that recruitment been affected?
5: It varies. So
1: because we're
5: in this financial crisis, some sites are looking at it a little bit differently. Should I hold off on hiring that position, making sure that um, so the private sector, private revenue, because we get our money from three different main sources. So we have AmeriCorps, school district, and we have the private sector. So now we're seeing in Ohio, for example, you mentioned Kev Ohio, we're going to have significant cuts, um, to our education budget, um, from the state. What will that look like for our schools that we serve in? So short answer, uh, is each site is looking at their particular, uh, situation in their community as it relates to those three different, um, the only one that could potentially that we have some optimistic information is honestly AmeriCorps. We may be looking at national service expanding because Mm -hmm. of the need, uh, because of COVID, but private sector and um, school district revenue are sort of unknowns. So people are being cautious, but we have some sites that are really in a strong financial position and they are hiring. So it's, it's diverse. It is differentiated across the network.
1: And, and Dana, from a volunteer perspective, the, uh, the pay grade that, that is volunteers. Uh, a lot of organizations just uh, stopped using volunteers, uh, um, sort of forthwith with COVID. Uh, what's the situation now in terms of volunteer recruitment and bringing those people back on and looking as at volunteers as a way of extending the labor force in a cost-effective way?
4: Yeah, and I'll. I'll- tie this answer into kind of our previous question as well, because California has, um, a really unique situation in that, uh, volunteer match just did a survey that, uh, nationally or even a little bit globally, whoever, uh, I think they had several thousand respondents, 93% of our sector is completely furloughed, suspended, shut down, um, and unknown. And I know from volunteer engagement professionals who are paid staff with, you know, large organizations, Red, Red Cross and, and, um, United Way and things like that, that they're furloughed, but they're also constantly being called for work <laughs> questions and strategy questions. And so the National Alliance, which uh, just released a statement with Volunteer Match, Points of Light, uh, MAVA, Minnesota uh, Association of Volunteer Administrators, um, Lady Foundation, some funders, a, a num- Alive, a number of other organizations, is really that it's so important for decision makers and leaders and agencies to absolutely recognize that their volunteer engagement staff member, uh, whether that's a paid or unpaid position, because some things are entirely volunteer run, has to be at the table of strategy for the very, very long term uh, mission capacity for the agency, uh, budget effects, whether that means actually expanding your volunteer talent pool, uh, cross training into some staff, deputizing staff to take on more volunteers, we're having really a feast or famine. there's that 93% that is shut down in kind of a panic mode. And um, to Jody and Arquala's point, like, I don't know if I have a job next week. Like, I'm furloughed, but I don't know if this is going to go away forever. So there's a lot of survival panic on the front lines. That other 7% is overloaded. They're going like gangbusters. And that's a lot of our sector that is in direct services, like food security, uh, animal care, you know, um, uh, vulnerable population care, elders, kids, uh, things like that, that require these in person uh, experiences with volunteers or in person care. So, what Gavin Newsom and my friend uh, Josh Friday at Cal Volunteers, California Volunteers, has done, if they've had a huge, huge hiring spree and a huge expansion of essentially Um, adding to the California Conservation Corps, but creating a California Volunteer Corps for any and all of these other capacities. We've had to have our National Guard working in food banks. And I've just seen that they're hiring several dozen volunteer coordinator positions across the state. So it's going to be interesting in the next couple of months with friends and even clients seeing and colleagues, are they just shifting? Are they bailing out of smaller nonprofits that can't really financially support them anymore? Are some of those going to go under um, and are they going to hop over to you know a better benefited, uh, better paid position with the state of California that's choosing wisely to really invest in expanding these programs? But it's uh, we're really in a lot of um, extreme situations. There's there's almost no middle ground when it comes to to volunteer engagement. And we're really getting the message out uh, across the board as much as we can to these decision makers that it, you know, the person who manages volunteers has the most headcount of anyone in your organization. Absolutely. Those are, every one of those individuals are skilled at being on the front lines and representing your agency. They're the best free advertising. They're your best connections to the community and it does volunteers aren't free. It takes investment and it takes, um, understanding their really important role in the strategy of continuing your mission. And especially if you have to expand your capacity right now.
1: So it looks like, as you said, it's one extreme to the other, Mm -hmm. some organizations really appreciating the potential volunteers and and others still not quite there. And what that sort of raises the, the issue about how we are learning from the way we've been coping over these last couple of months. And and Jody, I wonder in terms of the way you've been screening candidates, engaging with candidates, uh, setting questions for candidates and that sort of thing, what what how have we been exposed as a sector in this regard? And where where do you think our, our main training needs are, are are where we're gonna have to shift and and bulk up? Because we know that this, we could have a second wave in November, and 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 in and, and in future, we want to have some protection or insurance against these these sorts of issues. Where where have we been exposed, and, and need to improve our training?
3: yeah so uh, i think it's in three um three sections and you know one of course is um crisis proofing leaders and we've said that in the past right so when you hire a ceo and executive director um you you think you're hiring this person who can manage through everything well no one expected a pandemic and no no one expected you know if you'd have told us in february all your travels canceled you're going to be working from home with your family. Like no one it it, it just sounds like a horror movie. No one would have believed it. And um so I think we're looking for very different things right now in in candidates, in leaders. And you know the key competencies Shifted a little bit. We're looking for people who are action oriented. And so that sounds pretty basic, but it's a whole different level. Somebody who can reinvent an organization, you know, basically um, in a few days, uh, you know, and, (laughs) and get everybody to be up and running. We're looking for people managing ambiguity. It's been tossed around so much, but you have to be able to just go with the flow. Like right now we're in different states. I I have no idea when DC is ever going to open again, you know, like, so we're all living it day to day. Um, I think courage, I think resilience um, I think, you know, decision quality to be able to make a decision. We're seeing key leaders stand up and, you know, Corn Ferry. We're, we're, we had a live meeting with our CEO yesterday. I don't know, probably six or seven thousand. It's taking that courage to like, and it was all Q and A. We asked endless questions. Um, you know, when when are people coming off furlough? Have you know? I have teammates who are furloughed, and you know, it's somebody who has the courage who's going to answer. Somebody who instills trust, right? Who who people are going to follow? Because I think that's something we're going to think about a lot more, like in times of this type of crisis. Who am I going to follow? Um, who are a great vision who can outline a strong strategic plan a strong vision who can communicate effectively so you know i i was looking at endless airline emails and i'm thinking which airline you know it's southwest it's like crystal clear the other messages and not not to plug southwest but it was interesting like some of them were so transparent and some of them are convoluted so do my flights expire in december or like, you know, so I think that clear and consistent communication, not overloading people with information all the time, giving them what they need. So that's, you know, crisis-proofing leaders has taken on a whole new dimension. The other thing, you know, I think nonprofits, I'm, I'm talking about my, with my clients about every single day, we're doing a lot of chief development searches as well, is fundraising. You know, have mm-hmm. we ever considered were leaders ready to take it virtual. You know, so much of those six, seven figure gifts are face to face dialogues. And can we do it virtual? Um, our clients are asking things like, what do I do now for my virtual event? <laughs> and, um, you know, and it's, it's like, I don't know. And what about the conferences, right? So all of our associations, their revenue is dependent on their on the conferences. And, you know, so a board, I sit on our global summit was canceled in November. So that's the key fundraising drive. And that's the key networking. And, you know, we're we're looking at doing it online, but I think we're going to look at fundraising a lot differently. And then, of course, you know, I'll, I'll technology. I mean, um, I will say some organizations were already well-suited. I I sit at a global organization. We have been living on Zoom. We lived on Webex for so many years. Um, We have those midnight global Zoom meetings all the time. So um, I've seen organizations absolutely fall apart over technology. We've seen universities fall apart um, to move out of Zoom, move back to Blackboard. And so I think we're gonna have to really look at and invest in technology, how we define fundraising, and what, what a crisis-proof leader really looks like.
1: So I'm hearing from that crisis-proofing leaders, or leadership with slightly different orientation to it, in particular an action orientation, but still ability to uh, identify what some of the pain points are in, in the short term and try to address them. Ar- Arquella, what are you seeing in terms of how organizations have been exposed through COVID and what they are now thinking about or should be thinking about with regards to training?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, A lot of organizations now are, again, they have programming that they were doing. So I always say, again, this is not the time to stop the workplace learning. And so a lot of that we're seeing is virtual and uh, working with employees to continue to get their development um, virtually, as well as looking at reskilling. Um, their employee base um, based on the current uh, crisis and what's going to be needed in the future. So really that goes back to the planning, right? What can we learn from this and then how do we pivot? And um, that helps with kind of help retooling, reskilling the workforce. Um, other things I'm seeing too is really preparing the workforce around safety. Um, so how does that look for us now? Um, so what's the new normal? and preparing the workforce around safety, right? How do we keep ourselves safe um, going forward? And also just um, being able to put policies and procedures in place um, that make sense Um, around uh, telecommuting, around um, what does that distancing look like internally, Um, So those are things that I'm seeing organizations really focus on right now. And then two, what is that crisis to recovery? So um, Jody talked about crisis leadership, but what's our plan? We still have to stay true to our plan and our culture. And that may be, again, as I said, retooling it, but most organizations that I'm working with, they're still sticking to their plan and just really just refining what that may look like in the next 90 days or the next six months,
1: and and just on that safety point, which I think is really important, and for thank you for bringing that up, is that are you seeing people looking at that from primarily a compliance perspective, or uh, are they a bit being a bit more proactive and positive in the way that they're presenting that to staff? Yeah, I
2: think it's more. Uh, twofold. It's, it's definitely compliance, but also being proactive. Um, so for example, I have an organization that said, hey, we want to do a soft opening uh, on Monday, this past Monday. And so they went through and they had the whole office uh sanitized over the weekend. They are bringing so many staff to work a day for only three hours. And then they're making sure that they're practicing social distancing. They're following the CDC guidelines and they're putting all this in writing, but they're also just kind of retraining their staff on, hey, here's what needs to happen while you're in in the workplace, and to practice safety measures and making sure the posters are up. So yes, I think it's it's more two fold um, that I'm seeing.
1: So Derek, in in your sites, you've had to uh, stand up safety compliance and training pretty quickly, I imagine. What other areas have you found you need to uh, address that perhaps you hadn't expected to? With regard to training and staff development, well,
5: I think um, my colleagues have touched on from a meta level. We provide, our, I mean, our model is providing service in schools. So our schools, you know, are are closed and our our kids are at home in a virtual space. So we've had to adjust. How can we respond and help our schools, help our students um, by providing support? Initially, it was total chaos. I mean. <laughs> what we did was quickly pivot to provide support for our core members, uh, providing information so they knew what they were going to be doing. Um and then it's again, it's been state by state, site by site, school districts who are prepared. I mean, it has really elevated the it the it has really highlighted, illuminated the inequities in our communities mm-hmm. as it relates to access to resources, um, particularly the internet and the digital digital divide. So We've had to really ramp up. I mean, we've played a role in some communities of really trying to help to provide um, the actual, the hotspots and the different technology. Um, We had a national initiative to get tablets um, to our core members so that they would be able to provide services. We had initiatives to get uh, resources through AT&T to communities. So it's been um, very frenetic. And now it's moving into, okay, now, we need to understand what our, what our school partners are doing as far as planning for the, the next school year. Um, so that's been interesting. Um, our colors spoke about the safety aspect. I mean, we're the, so the advantage, if you will, is because schools are closed. We have a little more time. We can keep our offices closed. We don't have to return to the office quickly. Um, so we're still able to work from home as we purchase, plan, you know, p- Trying to get PPE, um, in anticipation of returning to service in person. Um, but the other piece is, and I'm sure my colleagues have experienced, I think we've touched on it a little bit just from a social aspect. We have people who want to get together. You have the one spectrum of people saying, you know, I don't feel safe and I don't want to, I don't want to go back to the office or I don't want to engage in that way. Then you have on the total opposite. I miss my colleagues. I, I'm chomping at the bit to get back and engage with my, with my team. What can we do to, um, get together? I actually participated in a conversation Monday around all of the aspects we've discussed. And that piece was interesting. The psychological, um, aspect of re-engagement of missing, missing your colleagues.
1: And, and to, to Jody's point about, uh, crisis proofing and being action orientated. Have you, have you, uh, felt the need to support your staff in ways of thinking about, say, the new school year in in August and how they might need to be able to respond quickly and what 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 skills they need to be able to do that. Have you found that people are 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 challenged to uh, to take that sort of problem solving approach? So it's twofold. I mean, it, it's overwhelming because.
5: It's going to be non-traditional. It, we're, we're more than likely going to be non-traditional in a lot of spaces. Um, just an example, in Ohio, they're talking about uh, sort of a, a staggered schedule, two days on, two days off, and then one day for cleaning, um, and then also some virtual learning involved. The one thing I will say is I'm very proud of City Year as a whole. We're an organization who sometimes, you know, we make things happen, we can pivot, but we're also, on the <laughs> conversely because we're a large organization, there's some things we can't pivot as quickly. So individual, like the the actual grit, people are really digging in, but it can be overwhelming. When you think, of, OK, do I have to adhere to the national policy or do I can I lean in locally? Can I be uh, is this an opportunity to be agile locally? So those are the conversations we're having. I don't hear so much the fear and getting stuck of, hey, this is a reality. We're gritty. We can dig in and we can figure it out how to help our. Our our students and our families, but it's because we're a national organization. We as a national team need to help our local site leadership to be able to be agile and figure it out. Um, and we talked about that Monday. We need to figure out how to be agile in this environment. So that's probably the biggest
1: challenge. And and Dana, uh, can you weigh in from a CVA perspective? How are how are volunteer administrators coping with not just the compliance? They need to go through uh, with volunteers but but some of the forward thinking problem solving that that this issue has exposed
4: yeah, and what it's really brought about is that there's a lot of wisdom in the volunteer talent pool. And, you know, we have all of the layers of HR function in volunteer management, and we cannot compel people to show up. (laughs) People (laughs) volunteer because they want to. It's not they're losing jobs or they're losing benefits. This is what they're choosing to do to support uh, the causes that are closest to their hearts and their souls. But strategically, again, what I'm seeing, what I'm witnessing, and it's making me just very sad for the sector is uh, everyone who's having a, a short-term strategic panic and cutting a volunteer engagement staff member or position or completely suspending uh, volunteer services without checking in with either the volunteers and what they are comfortable doing and what they are comfortable continuing to do or adjusting to new technologies. Um, so a lot of decisions are are being made without the input of the people most directly involved. And I the organizations that I'm witnessing having the most success have that full transparency of this is what we're doing to keep you safe. This is how we're complying with not only CDC, but I'm in California and I'm in San Francisco. So it's a really tight shelter in place and everyone has to leave the house with a mask. So here's what we're providing for you. Here's how we're keeping you safe. And Kev, you and I have talked about kind of my three C's comfort convenience connection of happy volunteers of keeping people safe Mm -hmm. uh, and comfortable in their roles and where people are, um, succeeding is letting people make those decisions themselves and also firmly enforcing safety as it has to be enforced because you know california is not is clearly not immune from people not taking this seriously sometimes so it 's been a an interesting and delicate balance, and the organizations that are succeeding are either merging efforts and programs uh, and kind of uh, City of San Francisco and Shanti have merged into a new program for food safety here in the Bay Area and those that are failing are the ones who made those cuts a month ago to their whole volunteer programs and now no one's on the front lines and they're also not getting accurate information from their constituents or clients um, as to what their needs are and how that agency's mission can continue to serve. Speaking to kind of getting through the crisis and having leadership in place who can handle it. It's also, um, there can be a thing in our sector where there's a real technophobia or there's an old school way of doing things in smaller nonprofits or more local nonprofits. And anyone who has been able to pivot into utilizing technology and leveraging online and remote possibilities or adapting new volunteer roles and listening to their volunteer engagement professionals and the volunteers themselves of, here's how else I can support your agency, that's who's doing really well, and that's who's going to come out the other side is really, really utilizing and strategizing with the wisdom in their whole team's talent pool, not just paid staff or a small executive team, but really putting it out there, even in one email question of, you know, what are you comfortable with? How else can you support our agency's mission right now? And how can we make you feel comfortable in the work that you are continuing to do?
1: So, again, there's still a lot of learning going on. We're early on in, in, in I think, that sort of learning cycle as things I wouldn't say he's necessarily settling down, but uh, from a more positive perspective, what has this extension of remote working and and rapid changes to programming styles and some of the partnerships told us about how we recover as a sector or move forward and think about the way that we're actually going to work? Arquella, can you talk t- about the shift to remote working uh, in particular but but other some of some of the other adjustments that we've made and and how they may become permanent features of the way we do things
2: yeah definitely um, this has um, yeah been an, an opportunity I, I read a quote where in the midst of crisis there's opportunity and um, so organizations are taking advantage of the opportunity to kind of reshape and and rethink how they do business and talking to organizations, they're like, okay, this remote working is, it, it, it's, it's been good, so we want to continue with it. Um, so what I'm seeing is an increase in organizations that will continue doing remote working going forward at some capacity um, and making sure, and I'm big on making sure we put things in writing, so having a remote work or a telecommuting uh, program, so that's a policy, that's a procedure, what, what does that include? Are we providing equipment to our employees? Um, what's, what's their, does what their home office or home setup need to look like? Make sure that they're safe as well. So seeing organizations uh, look at that on the long term um, at some capacity, but also incorporating those programs. And two, it's, um, it comes with the, okay, how do we continue to manage effectively our remote staff? And that comes with training our leadership <laughs> around making sure that we are still setting those expectations of what needs to happen um, while they are working remotely and, and what does the hours look like. So we still have to provide that structure uh, in that environment. Um, but And then, too, how do we keep our culture and those are things that can happen. It's just it takes a little bit more effort uh, on leadership's part to make sure that those policies, procedures, and the values, all of those are still implemented um, as people are working from home. And uh, but we're going to definitely see that. We're going to see more virtual training programming happening. Um, I know Jody was talking about there's associations who, who are kind of thinking about, okay, how do we, we're counseling, but I'm also seeing organizations, symposiums, large symposiums and conferences go virtual. Uh, I'm in one right now that is like 17 days. So every day there's an hour virtual session uh, that's going on for, you know, for the entire month of May, pretty much. And so, so yeah, so we'll gonna, we're going to see more of that uh, happening.
1: Interesting you mentioned... Uh, working from home as a as a written down policy, I think is probably one of the mm-hmm. most flexible, inconsistent policies that people have had to date about when it's right to work from home, who's allowed to work from home, what yes. do you need to do to work from home, mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden everybody's working from home, and <laughs> we don't really have robust approaches to that. So it's, it's interesting, but Jody, what other? Al- what, what other, besides from some policies and so on, how are you, how are, are you preparing uh, organizations who are recruiting but also potential candidates for what the landscape's going to look like going forward through not just remote working but uh, different sorts of policies? And, and Arquella mentioned really importantly, it's a massive, massive topic, uh, which is culture and, and just the idea that you have not just geographically disparate but in fact, almost no one together in the traditional way.
3: Yeah. So, th- so thanks. You know, it's interesting. I, I just want to add, I've seen it be incredibly positive working remote. You know, I, th- I feel like we've gone through stages, right? We're week six or maybe week seven, but um, I think it's just been so positive and I do agree That a lot of organizations, like a lot of, you know, we go into a meeting and we're hiring, whether it's a VP or CEO, and and we're told they must relocate. And, and, you know, now we're hearing a lot more like, you know what, it's not so bad. I think it's actually been incredibly positive. I think we're going to see a lot more flexibility, which excites me. I think organizations are going to have more opportunity to bring greatness in, you know, bring great new leaders, great new staff. Um, you know, I think that it's it's been really positive. And most importantly, we've realized I was somebody traveling 65, 70%. And I opposed and I, and I it often, right? So I wasn't like, you know, it, it loses its fun after a few years. But I think we realize we don't need to travel back and forth. We don't need to, you know, reserve two days for a meeting. That's really two hours. We can do it effectively online. Um, you know, we've learned what doesn't work and what does work. There's a time limit. You can't keep people for eight hours online to, you know, it's just not normal. Um, But the first few weeks, people were still doing that. And then they realized it doesn't work. Um, So I think it's been incredibly productive. And in terms of hiring, um, you know, it's not, the jury is still out. This is a work in progress. We've made, uh, gosh, I think we're up to about um, my team alone, about six CEO hires since this started. Like we were midway through and we kept going. We've created all these virtual onboarding plans. And you know, if anyone tells you they're the expert, they're not, I mean Corn fry, like we have some of the best and brightest minds. We made it up. You, you know, like there there was no roadmap. And I think that's done a few things. It's made people work together a lot more creatively. I think people are teaming up in ways um, that I've never seen people team up before. And, you know, so I think that's a really positive thing. But in terms of the interviews and the onboarding, what I've experienced is um, it's difficult, right? The cultural part is hard, but I think we, it, it brings a much more personal approach, meaning everyone's seeing in each other's homes. Everyone's hearing their dog or cat in the back. Their children. You know, I was on a video conference yesterday. Somebody's child was right behind her at a desk going to school. And, you know, I think it's made us all drop the shield of this is work, that's my life. Now it's all together. I've been on a lot more 7 a.m. meetings, you know, 10 o'clock at night meetings, just when people have time, a lot more weekend conversations. And there's not this sense of dread. It's a sense of like, this is the time we all have. So, you know, we figured it out. We've done a lot of training. We've created a lot of roadmaps and PowerPoints and, you know, we've, we've figured it out. It's not a perfect science, but I think that um, it's lending to a more personal experience. People seem to be less rushed and people seem to just be more themselves because they're home. They don't, you know, they don't have to like travel. It's not so formal. So, um, I think it's going to be here to stay i'm I'm hopeful that we don't resort back to ineffective means once you know we're back to traveling and back in our offices
1: there I think that flexibility is is clearly true and and important there is a risk however isn't there that uh, if you're working or or have to be seen as available for meetings at what Hitherto were 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 unsocial hours outside the normal business day that that does bleed into uh, that that work life split that some people have used as a way of of maintaining their own sanity and well being uh, so there will be adjustments I think uh, in, in both directions Dana what what opportunities or positive uh, uh, developments has have you seen I know there's obviously virtual volunteering already. Uh, I imagine that's expanding in in new and different ways, but what what opportunities are you seeing uh, already start to happen and what do you project going forward for volunteering because of the changes in uh, remote working and and so on?
4: Yeah, and agreeing with Arkella and and Jody's points, we're finding that uh, we can get talent and staff from around the world and there can be timing to that. So part of it has been Uh, you know, volunteer engagement professionals have been saying to often their leadership teams and and too frequently, they're not one of the deciders, they're more middle management or or lower in an organization. So what we're finding is that, um, you know, again, the volunteers themselves usually have some of the best ideas of how they can support the mission with technology, including lending very high pro bono technology skills. So a lot of what I've been Um, helping in conversations with clients and and in my pro bono work is, you know, here's a very high level volunteer that can set up a training on how everyone can adapt to zoom and not get zoomed out and how different learning styles have to adapt both for adults and and for different ages of kids, because this is a very different way of learning and it's genuinely exhausting in different ways than, than being in person. Mm -hmm. And we're also uh, to that informal uh, comment I'm seeing, and I'm having more and more colleagues and and clients comment on a building of empathy and humanity. And we're actually in a remote work world or a remote volunteering world. I'm seeing more and deeper genuine connections with people with each other, with missions in new ways and not just the partnerships that I spoke of earlier or thinking of strategy and community engagement in a new way going forward to whatever the new normal looks like. But I think the sense of grace, none of us have ever done this before. Being patient with ourselves, being patient with our entire team and recognizing that that great idea can come from Australia at uh, a chat at one in the morning, you know, or 10 o'clock at night, that really puts um, your your agency mission back on track, that it doesn't just have to be a local community, even if you've been very, very hyper-locally focused. And our conferences as well, uh, Points of Light Conference has gone virtual, and it's dropped its registration fee. So that actually has opened up accessibility for clients and for volunteers. So to me, I've seen a wonderful shift, and I don't want to get rid of this part of diversity, inclusion, and equity and accessibility that we, we other than the digital divide, which Derek certainly talked about and is true, particularly um, in some rural areas that don't have the infrastructure. If we can start to do more funding or more uh, volunteer efforts towards Uh, Crossing the digital divide and providing more technologies. And I see philanthropy stepping up, but we're engaging with each other in a really different way. And rather than being disconnected by technology, I'm seeing that, yeah, you know what? My dog's going to bark in the background. I have to, you know, someone has to feed their baby on camera because the baby doesn't get to decide when mom's meeting is and it's a six month old, you know, newborn. (laughs) So I I really appreciate the access for all. And that people who maybe physically couldn't get to meetings before where somebody somewhere insisted it was an in-person meeting, we're realizing it can be an email. It can be a good old-fashioned phone call. And um, even preventing ourselves from getting zoomed out or screen exhaustion, I just put a little Tuesday tip video on my YouTube channel about, you know, changing focus, taking breaks, like what are some physical things we can do uh, and share with each other to help as we're all adapting to these, these new technologies. But there's been some incredibly innovative ideas that if a a nonprofit or government program had just been going along business as usual, they never would have had this innovation coming up from other uh, paid or unpaid team members about how to do things better in the, as we go forward. And this could be, you know, a few months, it could be a few years where we're adapting to rotating in-office schedules. Uh, I have a lot of friends in the tech industry here, including my wife, and so major tech companies are also very carefully navigating how people get back to work and are also realizing that, you know what, not being in the office can sometimes be more productive uh, for everybody. But yeah, so I just-
1: so to, to, to that point, Dana, just, is there a risk uh, as as we expand the opportunities for digital or online volunteering, is there a risk that we uh, start to see a drop in in-person volunteering on which so many organizations rely?
4: I don't think there is because what I'm seeing is in that 7% of programs, they can still function really well. Uh, Many, many people are turning up to volunteer who are able to, either because of their health situation or they or they have, they're in an area of the country where that, that feels safe to do so. And there was um, a great article, it actually was a terrible thing, technically for the sector, it was a terrible thing that happened in UK, but the National Health Service put out a volunteering app Uh And they had 3,500 volunteer roles on the app and 750,000 people signed up to try to do those 3,500 roles. So one, I'm an extrovert and I'm missing hugs from my friends like crazy. So I really want to see people the minute it's safe to see people again. And there's a huge (laughs) section of the volunteer talent pool for any agency, for any mission that loves that in interpersonal relationship and interaction and is clamoring to do it. We're also seeing a huge spike in spontaneous volunteering and mutual aid where a program has shut down or it's never existed in a certain neighborhood and, um, you know, there's two teenagers in Maryland who just like, well, the seniors mm-hmm. in my neighborhood need groceries, and they're they don't know how to figure out Instacart, and no other government or nonprofit is filling this void. So these two teenagers just started doing it, and two weeks later, they had 65 people helping them. That's not a 501c. That's two teenagers in in Maryland figuring out how they know how to use Venmo and Square. Um, and completely informal mutual aid is popping up to fill the need where it's not covered by other social safety nets or programs.
1: So organizations need to think again, just segmenting their volunteer base and understanding how they communicate and engage those who want a virtual experience from those who want a an in-person experience. Derek, uh, how has uh, how do you think City Year and its both school district and also uh, other partners that you work with that serve uh, those same families. How are they all coping? What's going to be part of the new normal, you think, going forward? Well, it's going to be, as I mentioned previously, it's, it's until we
5: can um, accelerate testing and move towards uh, vaccine. I mean, it's going to be a combination of uh, virtual learning and in-person learning and having that cross-collaborative piece. The, the, the piece that we're still trying to figure out is um, what our, one thing that's just for me—I'll speak for myself. Will our core members enjoy that? So that's a different um, service aspect because um, in-person service, um, you know, City has a boots-on-ground approach um, to our work. So will mm-hmm. people, um, just from an intrinsic standpoint, will our core members enjoy that service? Uh, we're scenario planning for all of that, all of that work. Um, I think similarly, some of the partners we traditionally uh, partner with in this in the schoolhouse um, they're thinking of it in the same way we have a partner here in Cleveland it's a national organization america scores I mean a big part of their program is liter is literacy, but they provide literacy through soccer um that's a partner that we have in the community so that's that's an activity that requires i mean you can be creative and use technology and have uh soccer activities um virtually, but ideally you want to have that um in person engagement so um I forget who mentioned it. One of my colleagues mentioned like sort of the new normal as you become more accustomed and more familiar to our new environment. But if you really, I mean, we're only six weeks, six, seven weeks into this now, I'm losing track of time. Um, so we're still adjusting to what we're even going to be facing as we try to support the individuals that we collectively serve. Um, so it's still trying to figure it out. A big piece is we're graduating our core, so our core, current core is going to graduate um, over there. We have our first graduation actually today um, in Baton Rouge um, and our core will be graduating. And then we're bringing on um, new core members um, for the new service year. Actually, new program year starts in about 75 days technically. Um, but we don't know what our schools are doing in many spaces. So, so adapting, lots of, being lot, Lots of
1: adaptation sort of on the fly. Absolutely.
5: And being prepared uh, to be agile and respond.
1: Right. So – in in that light Jody, i want i wanna ask you first, but I'll go to each member of the panel one of the things we might expect reasonably in the new normal is consolidation not just programs but organizations uh and you would expect that to put some downward pressure on on wages and uh benefits in in a sector which already often complains of <laughs> reduced compensation uh and and if people can serve Say some of the uh, nonprofit core centers. I mean, we've got Dana in uh, in, in the Bay Area, uh, Glenn in New York City. You're in DC, Jody. Uh, we might add Boston and, and and Chicago. Outside of those main centers where there's a lot of nonprofit activity, the need is across the country. Uh, so, talk to me a little bit about what where you see or where you guys are projecting. The sustainability of organizations and and pay and benefits, which is obviously a big uh, part of the cost, uh, in in uh, the end of twenty twenty, moving into twenty twenty one, where you see that going?
3: Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I think if the sector consolidates, and you know, I I do think a lot of the smaller nonprofits are going to have to, and the nationals are going to have to choose, you know, which key locations. I actually think, you know, if it consolidates, um, organizations are going to seek higher level professionals. The pay might increase. I think it's going to be, you know, one great person versus five mediocre. I think development teams are going to transition. I think that where they used to have you know, four or five people, regional. They might have one superstar, pay that person more, um, and then bring in more junior. But I actually think for for people who are successful and people who are doing great work, I think it's going to benefit them. I think that you know, if you if you're if you can rise up to this challenge and if you've been really creative and innovative right now, because this is asking every single one of us across all the sectors, all functions to be innovative. Um, You you know, and and the people who can deal with ambiguity and, you know, have innovation, it's no more what we used to do and how we used to do things. I I think that's fatal. You know, that mentality is like, it's not going to work anymore. Um, So I think that, you know, there's going to be a lot of great opportunities for, for great people. And, you know, I think the people who might have been just getting by are going to have to up their game, you know, so I actually see it as hopeful, because a lot of times, you know, people who are hardworking and, and innovative, um, I think they're going to get some of the great opportunities right now. You know, I, I also think higher ed is going, you know, I'm, I'm watching it happen, um, major transformation, you know, even like People who don't want to work online, there's a lot of professors who are just struggling, they're canceling classes. It's not going to work anymore. Like, you're going to have to be adaptable because if we have a second wave, um, you know, we, we have to be ready. We cannot live through this again and, and approach it in the same way. We have to be the minute we're back home in the fall, if it happens, we have to adapt. So, I'm feeling optimistic. I think great great talent still going to have great salaries and, and find strong roles.
1: Okay, so a shift, a shift uh, towards uh, higher competency, uh, higher talent, but possibly smaller teams to make those uh, dollars work. Is that what you anticipate, Arquella? Would you say that, or do you have a slightly different view?
2: Yeah, definitely. I agree with Jody and seeing some of that. There's there's power in numbers. And so definitely as lar- larger organizations are looking for um, smaller, like for example, nonprofits, to show capacity, so seeing that um, groups come together and uh, be more adaptable, and I'm too. I, I do teaching um, at a local uni- university of Houston, so yes, it's it's the professors transitioning to the online. So it's like, okay, how am I going to teach public speaking online? But we made it happen, right? And so, yeah, definitely seeing that adaptability.
1: And and Derek, what what do you think? You already mentioned the uh, reduction. In public funding for schools, which is one source of of income, do you uh, anticipate uh, some consolidation within within City Year, and how does that affect your overall financial sustainability? So, um,
5: I, mean, I think I mentioned on the previous conversation, we have a new CEO at City Year, and we were already pre-COVID, we were looking at reorganization, restructuring um, to be more efficient, more cost effective. So that's that was advantageous. So we're already moving in that direction. Um, Definitely, I agree with everything my colleagues said at this point. The only thing I'll add to the talent is grit. Um, just being able to, uh, dig in. I'm a big believer in, um, when I interview folks, I also, uh, talent is key, but I also look for those who can persevere. Um, I look for, um, those, uh, skills where that aren't necessarily jump off the table when you're looking at the checklist when you're hiring i look i look a little bit deeper so i think in this particular environment grit is going to be a uh, perseverance i like innovation all of that but um, we don't know what we're facing so we the future um, holds so we definitely need um, some of unconventional talent as well if you will some of those unconventional skills that we don't always um, think of uh, first and
1: foremost and, and Dana, what are you looking at from a, from a volunteer perspective? More, uh, if, you, if you followed uh, the, the line of thinking here, is that we might have uh, more talent in the administrator uh, side. And um, uh, again, we've already mentioned the ability to leverage the potential that volunteers have for organizations. How do you see that going forward?
4: I think uh I agree with everything that's been said so far that this is forcing efficiency. These are brutal edits to things that were bad policies or practices or ways of being or um uh, dysfunctional cultures. I, this is really, I mean, on a personal and professional level, it's really forcing us to make uh, a triage choice of what is important. What's the core of our agency's mission? What's the core of our team? What's the core of our culture? And how do we uh, unify as a team going forward? And those are the ones that are successful. And some smaller ones will fold or merge or, or find new partnerships uh, in order to continue. But I, I kind of appreciate the pruning that, <laughs> that has to happen, even though it, it feels really brutal. We're also seeing that, um, you know, I've had some some clients uh, and friends, uh, other friends in the sector say, oh, I'm getting asked a lot, uh, you know, how can I replace my staff with volunteers? It's like, that's the wrong approach and that's the wrong question. You have to invest. You still have to invest in this. It's not free and anyone who can't adapt is going to be left behind. They're just, they're not going to succeed in whatever new normal looks like. Typically uh, a volunteer, a leader volunteers, an engagement professional, especially someone with a a CVA credential, um, we really have to be Renaissance people. We've got HR, we've got executive decision-making, we've got relationship management, we've usually got a piece of development or education to to our programs. So this is, uh, as a sector of professionals, one of the most innovative and adaptable and and flexible that um, we have, and again, Those large organizations like Points of Light and Alive and Volunteer Match were really pushing for that leadership to be recognized and utilized going forward in how we all survive through this new business model. Tech models, business model, health models, personal relationship models, professional models. Um, I think hopefully that innovation gets recognized and that's some of the good that comes out of this going forward.
1: Well, I love the way you described that uh, early in in your uh, response as a as a brutal edit mm-hmm. uh, and I'm wondering, and I'm, i I want to ask each one of you this as we come to a close this afternoon is uh, pruning was the other word you used? What is it that we're going to stop doing either as individual organizations or as a sector? Uh, Dana, since, you, since you've since you obviously observed some brutal editing, <laughs> I'll start with you, but I'd love to hear from everyone in the panel uh, as we wind up. What is it that we're going to stop doing?
4: I think we're going to stop having meetings for the sake of meetings. I think everyone's recognizing when the real work has to get done that we can't always stop and have you know a, a five-minute standing meeting about it. it. Just, again, kind of creating efficiencies and systems and processes is what I'm seeing going forward.
1: Excellent.
5: Derek, what are we going to stop uh, doing? Dana, actually, uh, I, I support that one. that the, the um, inefficiency of meetings, um, over-emailing. Um, as a leader in the organization, I've really been pushing hard on um, also taking time when you need time. So given that we're in, um, stop having a fear of taking a vacation or being in a space where you can actually take time. Um, we're, we're working through that culturally um, to make sure that people feel comfortable in that space.
1: Great, Arquella, What would you say is this thing that we should stop doing, or we're we're going to see an end to?
2: I would. Uh, I definitely agree with uh, uh, Dana and Derek. I would also say that we are going to stop um, really taking for granted our, ourselves and and our people, and start to do more self care because that is something that really is is getting us through <laughs> what's happening. Uh, so definitely, we're going to stop taking advantage of. Ourselves and people, and just really focusing on ourselves.
1: Okay, Jody, anything to add on that?
3: Yeah, so I agree with everyone. Gosh, if I don't have to get on a plane five times a week, I'll be really happy. But I think, you know, for me, it's it's clinging to structure. And it sounds counterintuitive because everyone has a strategic plan. But we've realized that we have no idea what's coming next. And so I think it's going to make people a lot more agile and, you know, approach each day. What do I need to accomplish today to get, you know, to be my best self, to do my best work for the team, my organization? So I think it's going to promote a lot more. Um, flexibility than we've ever seen before.
1: Okay. Well, what we're going to stop doing right now is having Nonprofit Problem Solver because we've come to the end of our time. I'd like to uh, thank the panel and the participants and we will see you uh, next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us in the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. Special thanks to this week's experts. Arquela Hargrove. Jody Weiss, Dana Litwin, and Derek Fulton. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio.
0: You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You're also invited to join a private Facebook group, Social Impact Practitioner where every day we go deep into the practical and tactical work to accelerate your impact. Because good causes deserve better results.